On August 18, 1781, the slave ship Zong, Z-O-N-G, which was at this particular point an English ship, but it had been originally built by the Dutch and had been given the name Zorg, Z-O-R-G, which means care in Dutch. I happen to know that. Now the name was changed to Zong. Sailed from Accra, Ghana, with 442 slaves on board, more than twice the number of people that it could safely transport. It sailed west, headed for the Caribbean, and on 18 or 19 November it neared Tobago, an island where ships would normally stop to replenish their water, and for some reason it failed to stop there. About a week or 10 days later, the ship came within about 25 miles of the island of Jamaica, but they made some kind of a navigational error. So they sailed past Jamaica and kept sailing until they ended up about 300 miles away from Jamaica. At that point, they began to realize that they were running short on water. And so they had to do something because people would die if there wasn't enough water on the ship and there were a lot of people on the ship. So they figured they had to do something with the slaves, of which there were 442. The ship was insured, and the way the insurance policies worked in that day, if enslaved people on board a ship died a natural death, they just died on the ship, then there was no insurance money paid out for the loss of the cargo. If um, enslaved people would be thrown overboard in order to save the ship, thrown overboard as pieces of cargo, that could be reported and recorded. And then the insurance company would pay out about 30 British sterling pounds per piece of cargo that was thrown overboard. So on 29 November, the crew assembled to consider the proposal that some of the enslaved people should be thrown overboard. There was quite a bit of a discussion about that, but soon they unanimously agreed to do that. And in total, 142 Africans were thrown overboard by the time the ship turned around and reached Jamaica. The, ship, the ship's owners, when the ship got in, in London, made their claim for these 142 times 30 pounds. The, uh, there was a jury trial, and the jury found in favor of the owners and against the insurance company, the insurance company claimed that uh, the, the, ship, the ship's crew was in error by not taking care of the water supply. And the owners made all of their excuses. And finally, the jury found in favor of the owners, because of standard protocol at that time that um, considered slaves to be cargo. And here's a quote from the judgment. The jury had no doubt. This is not from the judgment. This is from a comment someone made later. The jury had no doubt, though it shocks one very much, that the case of slaves was the same as if horses had been thrown overboard. The question was whether there was not an absolute necessity for throwing them overboard to save the rest. And the jury 
were of the opinion that there was an absolute necessity and that the difference between there was no difference between the slaves and horses or wood or any other kind of cargo that you would throw overboard in order to shave the stave the ship this is a story actual true story that happened about the interests of empire about particularly financial interests superseding the interests of human beings and we're now in acts we're at the almost end of acts we're going to be reading uh, chapter 27 of acts and it's the story that most of you probably know at least in some vague form of the last voyage of paul and luke to rome that contains many of the same elements we're going to see the need for profit the need to to try to make money the need to take care of prisoners the need to make sure that prisoners get to where they they need to go juxtapose with a humanity a kindness a, a different kind of an ethos norms and values breaking through and that happened actually a little bit with the zong the ship the zong because the insurance claim and the trial there were actually two trials that were held in connection with that was one of the impetus one of the motivating things that started in a more formal way the abolition uh, movement before we get into the story i would like to outline for you uh, three themes that we find um, in this story and they one they should show up on your screen one by one the first theme is this and this is a quote from jennings this is the, the journey of a centurion, a ship owner, captain, and crew, each focused on carrying out orders and making a profit. Profit management and strategic planning aimed at survival. Okay? So that's, that's the, the overarching framework of the story. And then within that story, as we're going to hear and read Paul, as he's on this ship and interacting, Paul serves, the next quote, Paul serves the God-made flesh. And here in a place and a time where the holy is not normally imagined as present, speaking and guiding, we find the Spirit working. So here in the middle of this, these acts of empire, we find in a very personal down almost to the micro level the spirit working through paul the follower of jesus and then we're going to see that paul discovered a truth that we all must remember god is everywhere waiting for us to arrive so we have the search for profit we have paul the follower of jesus serving the god made flesh being being a holy messenger in this place and on this ship and then what jennings calls gentile hospitality paul discovers the truth that god is everywhere waiting for us to arrive so what i'd like to do today and this is the main body of what i'm going to do is read with you this story from acts 27 we're going to read the whole of chapter 27 and then go to the first 11 10 verses of 28 just basically the story 
uh, as you remember, there's so many stories in Acts, I haven't read them all through, but I'm going to do it this morning. Basically read it and just make a couple of comments. But keep these themes in your mind because they should, they should uh, show up kind of automatically. So Acts 27, starting with verse 1. When, is, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be careful be cared for. So here's the first the first thing happening in this story. Julius the centurion who's responsible for the not the, the safety of Paul but the safety in the with the with the purpose of getting him to Rome. Julius treats Paul kindly. So here's this first little glimpse of of something breaking into this system. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee south of Cyprus because the winds were against us. As most of you know, uh, uh, I've done some sailing over the last year or two with, with my son, also down in the Caribbean, and learned a little bit about how the winds are. And I also follow on YouTube a couple of of what they call yachties, these couples that are on ships sailing around the world. And I followed them actually for a while now. And then you, you, you know how important it is to be able to judge the wind and from where it's coming to and how that changes everything about, about your journey. So they sail under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against them. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So Alexandria, of course, is the northern city of Egypt. And there's a ship from there, and they knew, okay, this is going directly to Rome, uh, not, uh, not passing go or anything like that, just going directly to Rome. So we're going to grab that one. They put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off, off Sinidus, And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along with it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So you're getting a feeling for how difficult already this whole journey is. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them. So Luke is again emphasizing how dangerous this journey is. And Paul said, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And Jennings makes this comment. Paul speaks here into a space in which he has not been invited He's not the captain of a ship. He probably doesn't know anything about sailing except for the sailing experience that he's had. There's no reason for anybody to listen to him. But prompted by the Spirit, 
in relationship with Jesus, in relationship with God, in relationship with the Holy Spirit, he goes to the leaders of this voyage and speaks his peace and warns them. But, and this was to be expected, verse 11, the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. This is our world. We know. (laughs) Who are you to tell us anything about wind and about ships and about sailing and especially about how to reduce loss and make a profit? And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. In the winter is not a good time to be on the Mediterranean. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. I'm not familiar with all of these technical terms. You're probably not either. But they were, they were doing everything they could to try to steer the ship and try to move the ship away from danger because apparently the winds were so strong that it was doing, having its will with the ship. Verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, now we're three days further, being violently storm-tossed and jettisoning the cargo, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days... And no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They had done everything they could do to survive. And they figured now that they had made a grave miscalculation. And that all was lost. Since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said... Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night they stood, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. And here's Jennings. They, the captain and the crew, thought that this was their journey and their history caught within the repetition of work and risk. 
But Paul is turning their world, and Jennings puts it this way, Paul is turning their world right side up. They are in God's history. And the Spirit's journey with Paul. Paul dares to speak at the sight of despair and chaos, saying that God lives, and so we too will live. So Paul, again, as this follower of Jesus, united with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection and glorification, is standing up on the ship, proclaiming that God is alive. Because he's alive, we too shall live. When the 14th night had come, so two weeks, see how, see how Luke is just emphasizing in the story how difficult this was. Can you imagine? 14 days. As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a second sounding. They took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, okay, the sailors, the crew, looking to escape, get out, let's get out, leave everybody else on board, we're out of here. They had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul, again, who's not an expert, said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Again, it's hard for us to imagine all the, all the tension and all the conflict and all the interaction that must have been playing here in this desperate, desperate situation. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. An astounding claim, says Jennings, made at the height of crisis. And when he had said these things, and just try to picture this in your, in your mind, he took bread, and th think back on Jesus. He took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And Jennings says this, The reign of God has broken into this ship. The ship that's being tossed by the wind and the sea. And at the breaking of bread, the reign of God begins. Placed at the site of chaos where death desires to reign. And announced instead a word of praise for God who delivers. He gives thanks to God. It becomes a, a source of hope and the sign of divine love. So in this crisis, with the ship going in every direction, with everybody having lost hope, not being able to eat, they're so afraid, for 14 days, Paul stands, takes bread, gives thanks, breaks it, eats it, and gives it to everybody. Here, you need this strength. 
And there's no question in my mind that he's thinking about Jesus. He, he may not have seen Jesus do this himself, but certainly he's heard the stories of Jesus doing exactly the same thing in the deepest of crises. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all, 200, in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat in the sea. They're keeping busy, doing everything they can. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stem, the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan, think of the zong, was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. And you see here this this intermingling of the kingdom of God and of empire. These two struggling and wrestling with one another in the midst of of this chaos and this crisis. But the centurion, Julius, who had been kind to Paul, Wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Instead of the prisoners being killed, which would have been maybe the normal thing to do, just like on the Zong, the centurion steps in. He says, no, we're not going to do that. Everybody, get overboard. If you can swim, swim. If you can't swim, take a plank, a piece of board, something else, and go. All were brought safely to land. And then we go to chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual Kindness, And that word kindness is the same word that's used back for the centurion. It's exactly the same word. The centurion showed kindness to Paul. And the Maltese show Paul and the whole ship and its crew unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. The island of Malta welcomes the boat people. And if that isn't relevant to this week, I don't know what is. Welcoming those who are coming out of a huge crisis, a desperate, deadly crisis. They're welcomed. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. This is part of the story that you probably remember. I remember it from reading it uh, at at the supper table as we read through our Bible stories. This was pretty exciting. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. This is empire thinking. Right? 
Whoa. He escaped from the sea. There's something special. But now, we don't know. Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were awaiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. Again, this is the, this is the natural human empire way of thinking. This, these, this is the way things work. But when they'd waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was God. And you know, they were right. He was a killer. Remember that? I don't know if he literally ever took a sword and stuck someone through with it. But he held the coats while Stephen was stoned. And he says himself... In his earlier speeches, one of what, some of which we've read here, that when Christians in Jerusalem and in Palestine and in other cities were being killed, he was there and, and, and participated in making that happen. He was a killer. But now, he'd been changed. He'd been saved. He was different. He was in a different kingdom. This is just a magnificent piece of writing from Luke to just point at that. Of course he was a killer. But now he's in God's kingdom. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. And I remember sitting around the the, the evening dinner table laughing at the name Publius. That's a, the other thing I remember about the story. We, we thought it was, was a hilarious name who received us and entered, entertained us hospitably for three days. Here's this hospitality. This whole island, all of these people, accepting 276 people in the dead of winter, when there are no crops, there's, there's no anything. You have to give them what you have. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And here again, you see this this kingdom breaking through. First of all, in the hospitality but then secondly, explicitly and intentionally, as Paul goes out, and now he's doing what he's, I'll use this word, expert in, just laying his hands, healing people. All of those on the island who had diseases came and were cured. That's what the kingdom does. They also honored us greatly, And when we were about to sail on to Rome, they put on board whatever we needed. This is a wonderful story of God working in the midst of the drive of empire for profit and power to save people and bring community. He works in and through Paul and in unlikely places. And I think as I've worked with this story this week, I'm coming more and more to the conclusion that Luke is concluding this story of Acts with this story in order to give us a blueprint 
We've been talking about empire till you're sick of hearing about it. And how the kingdom of God breaks in. And in the whole book of Acts, it tends to be in pretty subtle ways. Everywhere Paul and, and the apostles go to preach, the, the, the established order is turned upside down. And that, that's too big for us. How, how do we do that? And Paul gives us a blueprint here. Right in the middle of everyday life, right in the middle of the crises, right in the middle of everything that is of the making of profit and the securing of life as we know it here on this earth. Paul breaks in, guided and led by the Spirit, and says what God has given him to say and does what God has given him to do on the daily feet in the mud level of everyday life. Let me put the quotes from Jennings up there again. This is a journey of profit management and strategic planning. This is empire. And in the middle of that empire, there's Paul who's serving God, led by the Holy Spirit, speaking, acting, being a being a, a positive influence, doing what he can, sometimes stepping out of his comfort zone, out of out of out of the area in which he's an expert, doing what God has called him to do for that day in that place. But also finding God wherever he goes. God is everywhere waiting for us to arrive. You know that I've been bashing empire for a long time here. I'm pretty negative about it. I think we're in the middle of it. We're, we're, we're living in empire. And there's, there's, there's a lot, I think, that, that we can bash about it. But I'm also positive and optimistic because there's the centurion. There are the people of Malta. There are the everyday, ordinary people out in the world who, in whom God is present and who are doing things differently than what empire is driving them to do. And if your eyes are open, you can meet that, and you can see that, and you can feel that, and you can be encouraged by that. And that's all the way from the level of, I don't know if you've seen this picture in the last couple days, it's a very moving picture. Picture from the Kabul airport in Afghanistan, a, a young lady Marine is holding a little baby in her arms. Have you seen that? Seen that one? And she put an Instagram post, I believe it would have it would have been like Wednesday, of her holding this baby in her arms. And and on her Instagram post she wrote, I love my job. The next day she was killed by the bomb. All the way from that level 
down to the local Wawa right around the corner here. I don't know if you've noticed this if, if you've been in Wawa over the last year or two, but everybody holds the door open for you. Have you noticed that? It's an amazing thing. It's one of the reasons why I keep going there. Because everybody is going out of their way to hold the door open for everybody else. And for me, during this COVID crisis, that's been just such a cool thing that I keep going there. I don't know if it's some kind of, I don't know how it started. I don't know if it's a strategy. I have no idea. But it's just so nice to go there and just see this little piece of humanity. At every single level, God is working. His spirit is present. In the midst of the empire in which we find ourselves, to have people with unusual kindness and unusual hospitality doing what they can to help one another and to reach out and do something different than what the drive for profit pushes us to do. I listened to the sermons via podcast of a preacher out in uh, Missouri. He's just north of St. Louis, about an hour. His name is Brian Zond, Z-A-H-N-D, and the church is Word of Life Church. You can find it if, if you Google it. I listen to him quite regularly. And last week he held a sermon, and the title of the sermon was, You Can't Change the World, You Can Change Your Heart. He went through the whole sermon. You can't change the world. You can't change the heart. And I agreed with everything he said. But I thought to myself, that's not enough. Just to change my heart. I mean, that's okay. I need to do that. That's fine. That's good. But there's something missing there. And at the end of the sermon, he said, I could stop the sermon now or I could tell you a secret. Which would you rather me do? And, of course, everybody said, we'd like to have you tell us the secret. So he said, the secret is, you can't change the world. You can change your heart. But when you change your heart, you change the world. Do you feel that coming? (laughs) And that's what I want to leave you with today. God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And if you set out to change the world you're going to fail. But if you set out like Paul did, in communion with the Holy Spirit, in communion with this Christ who is reconciling all the world to himself, and you look for what's he leading me to say and to do, even if it's risky and even if it's not in my field of expertise, how will that change the world? And if I go out into this world with open eyes, where do I see the unusual kindness that's assigned to me? That in spite of all of the horrible stuff that's happening right today, even as we speak, with hurricane and war and abandonment and broken promises and empire crumbling, where do we see the Spirit of God, and how can we gain hope from that? Amen.